Of a very good evening. Welcome here at the Revolution Theatre. I'm glad so many of you fought their way through the miserable weather and came to the lecture tonight. My name is Robin Frick. I'm a senior lecturer in the philosophy department and the deputy director of the Center for the Philosophy of Natural Social Science here at the LSE, and I will be chairing the session here today. It's a great pleasure to welcome Paul Miller here, who's a very well-known figure in the field. He's the founder of the Department of Science and Technology Studies at UCL, where he also was the professor in history of philosophy of science for many years, he was <coughs> from 1991 to 2005. But before coming to UCL, he held positions in Harvard and at the University of Massachusetts. He has 11 books to his name, and I surrendered when I started counting the articles. So, very many great contributions to the field. Let me say a couple of words about his intellectual profile and his interests before I hand over to him. One of his main fascinations is with the nature of creative thinking. It's with the mind's uh, propensity to transform I mean, influences that we get from in our everyday life into sublime works of art music and science. But this, of course, raises the question, what does it mean to be creative? Is there something that links thought processes of the world's great artists to the world's great scientists? And if so, what is this link? And this is one of the guiding questions that he spent many years working on and has produced many works. But there's a special method to his investigation. Um, he's not merely sitting in his armchair philosophizing about how things could be. He is one of those um, intellectuals who go out and make their hands dirty and study actual figures in actual history. So we got many great insights on Picasso and Einstein, to mention just two names. Um, his new book stands in this intellectual tradition. It is an engagement with two very well-known figures from psychoanalysis and physics, but I will let him tell you more about this. Just two items of practicality, as it were, before we begin. First of all, there is a bookstore outside. You can buy the book at a special rate, and you can also get it signed, if you wish so. You can buy all your Christmas gifts already. A good opportunity. And second, we run through the lecture without interruption, but there will be enough time for questions at the end. So please spare your questions for the end. And then, without further ado, Arthur, please. Thank you, Roman. A wonderful introduction. And uh, what I'm going to do today is to address the question of what happened when the brilliant and, and troubled uh, scientist Wolfgang Pauli met the great psychologist Carl Jung in 1932. Does Jung's, can Jung's analysis of Pauli's dreams shed 
further light on how he made his scientific discovery. And let me, uh, let me begin by talking about the standard science history version of Pauli's route to the exclusion principle. Uh, in, 19, in 1913, Niels Bohr formulated a theory of the atom based on its uh, uh, iconic image as a minuscule solar system with uh, the, the sun replaced by the nucleus and the atoms go around the, the, the nucleus in orbits. Now, in only certain specified orbits, and these orbits are tagged by uh, whole numbers called quantum numbers. And uh, this is the principal quantum number n, which labels the, initial, the inner orbit n equals 1, 2, 3, and so on. Now, when an electron drops from a higher to a lower orbit, the atom emits light, which is picked up in a laboratory as a, as a spectral line. Right, got it as, as a spectral line. Uh, despite the Bohr atom's enormous achievements, there were certain problems with it. First of all, why didn't every electron fall into the atom's lowest orbit? Uh, by 1922, uh, Bohr had uh, come up with, uh, was able to guess the correct distribution of electrons among the orbits, but he offered no details. And briefly, it goes like this. There are two electrons in the inner orbit, 18 and 32. In other words, it runs in a progression of 2 times the principal number, uh, principal quantum number n squared, 2n squared. But, I mean, there was no scientific support for this whatsoever. Uh, another problem is when an atom is placed between the pole faces of a magnet, certain of the spectral lines could split into multiplets. And uh, the Bohr theory could not handle certain sets of these multiplets. This was called the anomalous, the anomalous Zeeman effect. And it baffled everyone, including the uh, 22-year-old Wunderkind, Wolfgang Pauli, who obsessed over it. Finally, Pauli became fed up with the whole thing, ceased to work on the problem, but kept up with uh, the literature. Now, while a, uh, a faculty member at the University of Hamburg in 1924, Pauli had two brainwaves, two brainstorms, if you wish. One, what did relativity theory have to say about the predominant model uh, of an atom with one free electron, the alkali atoms? Now, the alkali atoms uh, mimicked, to some, to some degree, the sole atom with which the Bohr theory had any detailed success with, namely the hydrogen atom. The alkali atom uh, is comprised of, can be modeled as an inner core of electrons, all the orbits are filled, and then there's one free electron, and on the shoulders of this free electron rests the chemical activity for the entire atom. Uh, Niels Bohr came up with the idea of, uh, in order to explain the anomalous Zeeman effect, of why not have the core uh, be deformable in two ways. Now this uh, number, this factor of two, or should I say one half, was, was common to all, to all core theories. Enter, uh, but uh, electrons in a closed core can move at speeds close to that of light. Probably applies relativity theory here. This should lead to uh, this should affect the spacing between the multiplets. No such effect was found, and Pauli, in his usual direct way, said that core models are useless. Now, what about there's a second brain wave which requires just a bit of explanation here. The uh, each of the electrons in the Bohr atom requires three quantum numbers to, to tell where it is. And that's reasonable because we live in, th in three-dimensional space. 
uh, enter a physicist by the name of Edwin F. Edwin F. Stoner, who was a professor at the University of Leeds. And what Stoner was able to do was to, by adroit manipulation of these three quantum numbers, he was able to relate the number of multiplets in an alkali atom to the number of electrons filling up each one of the shells. And that's as far as he went. And that was enough, because Pauli realized how to extend stone as a result beyond the anomalous Amon effect by allocating to each electron the two-valuedness of the useful of the useless core. So he did it as follows, to assign to each electron a fourth quantum number with the value of one-half, soon to be associated with the spin of an electron. Ergo, out popped the exclusion principle that no two electrons in an atom or in a collection of electrons in a gas can have the same four quantum numbers. Uh, what happened here is that this substantiated Bohr's guess of how, uh, of, for atomic structure, and enabled a further understanding of the periodic table, and uh, enabled you to explain why metals are hard, and why certain stars die the way they do. Now, uh, this, this uh, in, in a nutshell, is uh, Pauli's discovery of the exclusion principle told on along a science uh, vein. But uh, there must be more to it. I mean, I want to know how he thought, what his thought processes were, and in particular, why he angsted so much over moving from three quantum numbers to four quantum numbers. Now, although Pauli compartmentalized his mental activity, could it have been that when he made his creative outburst in 1924, the watertight compartments of his mind broke down. And indeed, there were two sides to Pauli's personality. During the day, he was a staid Germanic physics professor, a professor doctor, but at night it was something else, as he explained to Carl Jung ten years later. As he related, the, the specific uh, threat to my life has been the fact that in the first half of life, I swing from one extreme to the other. In the first half of my life, I was a cold and cynical devil to other people and a fanatical atheist, an intellectual intriguer. The opposition to that was, on the one hand, a tendency towards being a criminal, a thug, which could have degenerated into me becoming a murderer, and on the other hand, being detached from the world, a totally unintellectual hermit with outbursts of ecstasy and visions. By night, Pauli often frequented the St. Pauli, which was the notorious red-light district of Hamburg. There, the main activity was not on the main street, the Reeperbahn, but on Pauli's favorite side street, the Grosse Freiheit which was lined with uh, uh, rough bars and cabarets teeming with women. And there, Pauli found a means to alleviate his stress and to alleviate the strains on his psyche, uh, which was caused by essentially a life dedicated to physics research, of which he believed he was failing miserably. And he dropped into the underworld of drugs, alcohol, and prostitution. The more he drank, the more obnoxious he became, and he was often thrown out of bars, which was a mixed blessing because he, uh, uh, he from time to time, got into brawls and was beaten up. Uh, in other words, he was a Dr. Jekyll. He was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. To make matters worse, he had difficulties in dealing with women for matters other than sex. As he wrote to his friend, the physicist Gregor Wenzel, I have noticed that wine agrees very well with me. After the second bottle of wine or champagne, I usually adopt the manners of a good companion, which I never have in a sober state, and then may under these circumstances enormously impress the surroundings, particularly if they are women. 
1927, a calamitous event occurred in Pauli's life. His beloved mother committed suicide. Wolfgang Sr., his father, a famous chemist, uh, had gone, ever, ever the womanizer had gone too far this time and had left his wife for a woman his son's age. Uh, this was too much for Pauli's mother who committed suicide. Now, uh, the great compot metalizer, Wolfgang Jr., instead of uh, you know, commiserating with friends, to, uh, talking about his, his frame of mind with his friends, buried himself deeper in his work. Uh, the following year, 1928, the call came from the Swiss Federal Polytechnic Institute, or the ETH in Zurich, for a professorship, giving essentially Pauli a new lease on life. As he wrote to Jung some years later, he recalled that he left Hamburg and traveled towards my new professorship and my, my big neurosis, as if he didn't have one already. Socially, he did quite well in Zurich. Here he is on the Strandbad, a beach uh, not uh, a short drive from the city, and he surrounded himself with uh, uh, brilliant young scientists such as I.I. I. Robbie, Felix Bloch, Ralph Kronig, and Rudolf Pierls, and stellar postdocs such as J. Robert Oppenheimer. Here's the, the three of them on a uh, uh, Pauli on a uh, they're on a, uh, a cruise, a sailing boat on Lake Zurich in the summer of 1929. Pauli, I.I. Robbie, and Oppenheimer. Uh, Pauli felt sort of an attraction to Oppenheimer. Perhaps he saw in him a reflection of his own tortured personality. Now, in the spirit of the uh, of the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, Pauli considered marriage to be a bourgeois institution to be avoided at all costs. So everyone was surprised when in 1929, Pauli married Katie Deppner. Now, Katie Deppner was a, a, a cabaret dancer whom Pauli met in one of his uh, jaunts into the fetid demimonde of Berlin. And uh, here they are walking together, arm in arm. For one, Pauli doesn't have the usual cynical smile on his face. He looks quite happy. His arm is in hers, and they're walking in the hills around Zurich. Suffice it to say, it was a mismatch. They were divorced less than a year later. In fact, she told him straight away that she had fallen in love with somebody else. And before they were married, and she tried to take a chance with Pauli. Um, meanwhile, Pauli's scientific uh, creativity never flagged. One month after their divorce, in December 1930, he audaciously postulated a new particle which came to be called a neutrino in order to save the law of conservation of energy in, in beta decay. It's extraordinary at this time of immense uh, mental angst that he had, that he could, he was still thinking that he could make such an audacious hypothesis of such cosmic importance. His powers of compartmentalization were indeed amazing. In the summer of 1931, Pauli toured the United States, lecturing on his, on his new particle. Here he is at uh, Pasadena. He's been lecturing at Caltech. Looks quite happy. Uh, his, uh, whether he was or is not, we'll see in a moment, because his trademark cynical remarks were becoming more frequent, engendering further resentment from their targets. Remarks such as, why, that's not even wrong, so young and so unknown, and you're more interesting drunk than sober. And in fact, at this point, Pauli was drinking to excess, and uh, later that summer, in August of 1931, he managed to fall down a flight of stairs at a party and broke his arm. He finally revealed the truth about his mental state, again, to his friend Wenzel, when he wrote, with women and me, things don't work out at all, and probably never will succeed again. This I am afraid I have to live with, but it is not always easy. I am somewhat afraid that in getting older I will feel increasingly lonely. The eternal soliloquy is so tiresome. He's only 31 here. <laughs> <laughs> He's like Byron, life was over 23. Uh, what 
Indeed, far from taking the divorce from Keita seriously, uh, in the sardonic and, and cynical wit that he explained it to others, uh, he had gone out on binge drinking again, uh, was getting into barroom brawls, and his arguments with colleagues at the Eteha reached the attention of the administration and put his position in jeopardy, despite his, despite his brilliant research. Uh, once again, he was living two separate mental lives. To add to all this, his vivid ecstasies and visions were seeping into his waking life. And at the beginning of 1932, he reached a frightening low point and decided to take the advice of his father, whom he hated, to go to see the uh, consult with the celebrated psychoanalysist Carl Jung, who... Oh, I should have been. I, I read that to you. Carl Jung, who at 57 years of age was at the height of his, uh, of his fame. Now, unlike, unlike Freud, um, Jung was interested in those aspects of, the un, of, a, of a person's unconscious which could not be attributed to an individual's personal development but to deeper, non-personal realms, which he called the collective unconscious, whose contents are archetypes. Now, archetypes are... Uh, latent potentialities. We can never know what they are per se because they exist in a mysterious shadow realm of the collective unconscious, but it's possible to energize them uh, and have them bubble up into consciousness and where they appear as archetypal images or symbols and in that way archetypes affect our thoughts, actions, and emotions, feelings, actions, and emotions. And to his amazement, Jung found that patients in their dreams dreamed images that were similar to those in esoteric cults and in alchemy, subject matter which most people considered as totally worthless, but not Jung. Uh, most important was the mandala symbol. Uh, Jung found that it occurred in, in back into the depths of history and in civilizations across the world. Uh, it can be a circle or a square, uh, but characterized by four objects symmetrically placed. Why four, Jung didn't know in, in the early days when he was putting together his, 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 analytical, his analytic psychology, as he called it. He knew four was a sacred number, a magic number. There are four Aristotelian elements, earth, water, air, and fire, uh, four cardinal points of the horizon, four rivers of paradise, and so on. Uh, he, he also knew that upon achieving stability after bout, deep bouts of depressions, his uh, patients uh, usually drew mandalas, spontaneously drew mandalas. Now, before visiting Jung, Pauli uh, made sure he read up, uh, he read as many books as he can find. It's possible to look into Pauli's own collection of books at, at CERN. Uh, he made three vertical marks for uh, very important uh, Sections and Pauli focused on Jung's 1921 book, Psychological Types. In that book, Jung set up a vocabulary and framework for his developing analytic psychology. Uh, on the basis of his uh, clinical experience and vast knowledge of Eastern and Western philosophy, literature, and, and, myth and, and mythology, Jung offered a topology of the mind based on two types, an extrovert and an introvert, in fact, bringing those terms into the language that we use today, uh, fine structured with uh, four basic functions taken two at a time, thinking, feeling, intuition, and, and sensation. Uh, 
once again, why four? He just didn't. He just uh, couldn't understand it at this point in time. But it seemed to emerge from his patients that there were four basic functions. Now, the dominating function gives each individual uh, their own psychology. So, for example, thinking types uh, focus their conscious thought on thinking at the expense of feeling. And the feeling function becomes an inferior function. And in extreme circumstances, the feeling function can lapse into the unconscious and revert to its archaic form. And in this, in, in this situation, uh, the feeling function can give off energy which finds its way into consciousness and uh, leading to ecstasies, visions, which can result in, in neuroses. Now, we're all a product of, our, of the two types and the four basic functions, and our psychology, our personality, our mental health uh, is determined by uh, opposing objects, opposing objects in, equilibri- in, in, in opposition, uh, finding equilibrium. And indeed, a, uh, the goal of Jungian psychology is to develop inferior functions, so the struggle among opposites to achieve equilibrium. Now, Pauli strongly identified with several of Jung's insights in, uh, in psychological types, here he came across a passage uh, which he outlined as very important. Where the persona is intellectual, the soul is quite certainly sentimental. A very feminine woman has a masculine soul and a very manly man a feminine soul. The opposition is based upon the fact that a man, for instance, is not in all things wholly masculine, but has certain feminine traits. The feminine side of a man is his anima of a woman. The masculine side is an animus. Pauli was wondering where his feminine side was, perhaps Jung could uh, could identify it for him. Pauli read further in Jung's psychological types and came across a passage which again the whole passage has three vertical marks next to it and he must have been totally amazed. He said, that's me. Uh, An introverted thinking type. I will read this to you. His judgment appears cold, obstinate, arbitrary, and inconsiderate. Only with difficulty can he persuade himself to admit that what is clear to him may not be equally clear to everyone. His is an exacting scrupulousness. His work goes slowly and with difficulty. Either he is taciturn or he falls among people who cannot understand him, whereupon he proceeds to gain further proof of the unfathomable stupidity of man. Or he may develop into a misanthropic bachelor with a childlike heart. He appears prickly, inaccessible, haughty. He has little influence as a personal teacher, since the mentality of his pupils is strange to him. He is a poor teacher. He has a vague dread of the opposite sex. So, with all that under his belt, Pauli went to see Jung in his fortress-like house in Kuznacht, outside of Zurich. Jung sized him up immediately. Jung saw before him a young man of excellent scientific education, but a very one-sided intellectual, a hard-boiled rationalist, who did his best to evade his emotional needs as a waste of time because they had nothing to do with science. Uh, Pally's thinking function far outweighed his feeling function. Pally poured out his, his problems to Jung, and the situation had become critical. Um, he was in a panic over his amazing dreams and visions, and he felt he was going to lose his reason. In fact, Jung said that when he entered my house, I myself felt the wind blowing over from the lunatic asylum. <laughs> After an interval of time, Pauli began seeing Jung regularly at 12 noon at Jung's house in, in Kusnach on Mondays, as much as possible. 
by the time uh, that Pally came to see Jung regularly, uh, in, in about January of 1933, the analysis lasted only a year and a half, from January 1933 to about uh, to April 1934. Um, when Pally visited Jung, let's recall, in January 1932, there was an interval of time when other things were going on. Uh, between January uh, 1932 and January 1933, Pally wrote up 355 dreams and detail. And while he was a patient of Jung, he dreamt another 45. Jung was ecstatic. He said that these dreams contain the most marvelous series of archetypal images. Now, Pally insisted that Jung maintain, Jung never mentioned his name. Uh, when Jung began to lecture on Pauli's dreams. Uh, Pauli felt that his personal reputation could suffer. Jung's reputation in many quarters was kind of dicey uh, due to his folding of alchemy into his, into his psychoanalysis. Now, of, the, uh, of these 400 dreams, Jung analyzed 59 of them and wrote them up uh, because they exemplified the process of individuation. This is the centering of the personality between the conscious and the unconscious. This is the end point of Jungian psychology. It's a process linked with the appearance of symbols such as the anima in men as well as the, as the mandala. Now Jung's method of analytic psychology is to, uh, is to identify uh, a person's dream images with images in alchemy, mythology, and religion um, and processing this through the four basic functions. Uh, in this way, Jung believed that he could seek out archetypes, and he understood this process as a dialectical discussion between the conscious and the unconscious, leading to the person being able to uh, separate their dark side or shadow from their anima, speaking of a man, and in that way uh, uh, being able to lead a healthier mental, mental life. This is Jung's uh, office as it is today. Um, can you all see this, or should we turn down the light? It's okay? Okay, this is the way it exists today. A uh, person can sit either on this chair uh, and look at Jung's magnificent collection of alchemical books, or sit on this chair and look at Lake Zurich. It's a huge house, magnificent house. And Jung sat on a couch in the middle. Uh, on the table were stacked up papers and books, and similarly on the floor there are a lot of books and papers around. It was a very intellectual setting. Jung had a smaller room where he analyzed patients that he was not interested in all that much. In the big room, he preferred the big room for people like Pauli because Jung, Jung uh, in, in, that, in the course of the analysis felt that he could leave his body. He was on the ceiling, on the wall. He was observing, he was observing from everywhere. Let's take a look at uh, some of, uh, at certain of Pauli's dreams. Pally, one dream is he's surrounded by a group of vague female forms, and he hears a voice within him say, I must get away from father. And Jung replies, and Jung says to him, well, that sentence should be completed by in order to follow the unconscious, that is, these, these uh, seductive, uh, seductive female forms. And uh, then, in, in the course of analysis, Jung would uh, uh, turn around his uh, library of, uh, of ancient alchemical books, and pull down a book and show an image. In this case, uh, there's the image of, uh, of, three, of three maidens representing the unconscious. Standing next to them is Hermes, which is the ancient Hellenic name for Mercurius, who is a central figure in alchemy. 
uh, in alchemy per se, uh, Mercurius uh, moves between the uh, the worlds of lightness and darkness. He's a psychopomp. In Jung's folding in of uh, alchemy with uh, analysis, uh, Mercurius moves between the worlds of the conscious and the unconscious. The father is not Pauli's uh, real father, but it's the uh, it, it, it connotes the the in the the male intellectual world, as opposed to the unconscious, which is which is the feminine, the, in opposition to the unconscious, which is feminine. The dreamer, Pauli, feels as if acknowledging uh, the female side or the unconscious will detract from the rational world. Now, that figures in Pauli's dreams are uh, feminine figures show up, or seductive-looking figures, Jung says, is, uh, is reasonable because uh, in, in alchemy and myths, such female figures show up and try and lead the unwary traveler astray. Uh, Pauli here has the choice of being led astray or meeting his unconscious with all of the unpleasantness that's going to emerge, such as the irra- meaning of, of the irrational. Pali dreams that he's rooted in the center of a circle made by a serpent who bites his own tail. Pali's dreams um, are under lock and key right now, and so are his illustrations. And uh, this is an illustration by my artist colleague, Fiorello Lovato, and what one point we're uh, trying to do with the Pali material is to uh, investigate uh, Pali's dreams in part by, by illustrating them. So this is an illustration of uh, perhaps somewhat along the line of what Pauli drew, but it, it, it is illustrative of his dream. Jung stands up and pulls down a book from his bookshelf, and uh, this and shows Pauli a uh, an image of the serpent who bites his tail. It's called Euroboros. Euroboros is uh, also the name of, Mer- the, of Mercurius at the onset of the alchemical process of purification. The circle indicates uh, that the process is a circular process in which the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, are transformed into one another. The circle also demarcates off an area. It's a sacred protected area in ancient alchemy, and its name is the Timonus. In Jungian uh, psychology, this protected area is an area in which the dreamer can meet his unconscious. Uh, Pauli dreams of a veiled woman who appears for the first time. Pauli says her technical name is the anima, that is his female side. Uh, the appearance of a, uh, of a human figure rather than a symbol to Jung in Jungian psychology is important. It means that there's autonomous activity in the unconscious. Something is about to happen. Uh, Pauli, the anima, is about to show Pauli uh, the way to the unconscious with all its unpleasant surprises. And Jung illustrates, well, Jung shows Pauli a, uh, a William Blake uh, painting in which a, a number of unknown veiled women uh, line a staircase which makes an ascent of the soul through the seven, through the seven orbits of the planets to, where, to, to its, where it resides, in the sun. In Jungian psychology, the soul contains all those general human qualities that are absent from the conscious attitude. So, Pauli is fired up. He wants to plunge into the unconscious. Uh, he's, his dreams shift to his interactions with three people, one of whom he ignores, 
this is his anima or the unconscious, which is still deep in the uh, his anima, right? his anima, which is still deep in the unconscious. And Jung illustrates this very interestingly. Uh, this is the, the circle now. Uh, three of the basic functions are pretty much in consciousness. The fourth feeling function is still buried in the unconscious. There it's sending, at, at, at that point, it has the ability to release energy surges, constellate archetypes, which appear as archetypal uh, uh, images. And, and Jung says at this point, apparently, that there is going to be a lot of unpleasant imagery coming up. Uh, but that unpleasant imagery will point the way towards reconciling apparent irreconcilables. In fact, in another dream, Pali dreams that he's being clubbed over the head by, by an ape man. Uh, now, Pali's uh, successive dreams after this, uh, he dreams of symbols, of, of numbers. Uh, Pali asks Jung, why four? What's so important about the, uh, the quaternity as opposed to the trinity? Uh, the, the, the trinity does perfectly well in Catholicism, so why not use that? And Jung uh, replies that basic to alchemy is a reconciliation of opposites. And ancient myths tell us that in deep history, there was a shift in the world's consciousness from the feminine to the masculine, with the feminine dropping into the darkness of the unconscious. Um, ancient myths and uh, from religion, Eastern and Western religion, uh, indicate that odd numbers are masculine and even numbers are feminine. And so in Christianity, three is the one. The fourth is feminine. The role of alchemy is to bring the female element out of the darkness, thus setting the stage for the alchemical marriage, the bringing together of, of irreconcilable pairs, such as fire and water, and then the, the prime, uh, in, in mythology and alchemy, the prime pairs that must be reconciled man and woman. When these are reconciled, then in alchemy you've achieved your highest uh, realm of enlightenment. Unity results, Jung emphasizes, from the fusing of fours, not by threes. So, Jung interprets Pali's attempt to achieve individuation, Pali's now moving along in a psychoanalysis, as analogous to the alchemist striving for the lapis, the philosopher's stone, which in Jung's psychology is a self or sum total of the conscious and unconscious. This is the goal of individuation, to balance the self between the conscious and the unconscious. Now, in, in alchemy, one has a circular transformation of the four elements. Uh, eventually, the fifth element, or the quintessence, emerges, which is the philosopher's stone. In this sense, man and woman come together as well, and that's the ultimate level of enlightenment when the philosopher's stone is attained. Um, in Jungian psychology, this ultimate stage of, 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 of enlightenment is, is individuation. In both cases, circles are important, and the circle is the basic mandala of alchemy. And indeed, at this point, Jung must have realized that it was the basic mandala of his psychoanalysis as well. And uh, here he finally realized what, why, this, that this is a mandala. And these, because there are four elements equally, you know, equally distributed, and indeed this emerges 
from uh, a person's deep unconscious and it moves across time and across, and across civilizations as well. And Pauli begins drawing mandalas towards the end of his uh, uh, analysis. They're skewed, they're not symmetrical, and finally he produces his vision of the world clock, which he notes uh, gave him a sense of sublime, a sense of the sublime. It's a complicated mandala, as you would expect of a, of a, of a complicated person. Uh, it's a fully-fledged mandala. Pauli's has a balanced psyche, and Pauli's psyche is balanced. What one has here is uh, two circles intersecting one another. This blue circle, the vertical circle, is divided into 32 equally spaced segments, and a ticker ticks through them. And Jung interpreted this just, just briefly. Uh, interpreted this as the rational or masculine uh, element. Uh, therefore, it is associated with the Trinity. The Trinity is the pulsative system. This sets, this ticking sets the whole system in, 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 into motion. And Jung wrote 32 as 4 times 8. You can write 32 lots of different ways. Jung wrote it this way in order to bring out the quaternity or the 4. And so Pali's vision is of a threefold rhythm tempered by a quaternity, which is the horizontal circle divided into the four colors of alchemy, so that each is contained in the other, thus completing the incomplete trinity. So Pali's struggles between three and four have ceased. Okay, let's link this to the uh, exclusion principle, and uh, let me just say something about this saying by Bohr, because it will come back a little bit later. Uh, at the end of 1924, uh, when Pauli discovered the exclusion principle, he wrote a long letter to Bohr, uh, who was in Copenhagen at the time, with Heisenberg, and the two of them looked at it and sort of chuckled, you know, another crazy scheme. And uh, about a week later, Bohr realized that there's maybe something in this, and wrote to Pauli, this is complete insanity, meaning that it's good. Now, uh, some years afterwards, uh, in 1951, Pauli wrote to somebody named Marcus Fierz. Fierz had been an assistant to Pauli and uh, was a uh, somewhat famous physicist in his own right. Uh, but the point is, is that uh, with Fierz is that Fierz was Pauli's closest confidant regarding Jungian psychology. But Pauli never even told Fierz that he had been in face-to-face -face analysis with, with Jung, although Fierz said that many people suspected it. And Pauli made clear to Fierz that, that, that going from three to four in discovering, the, in, in discovering the exclusion principle, you know, three quantum numbers to four quantum numbers, that was the thing. And he continues in this letter, Thus on a psychological line, this time I have once again bumped into the problem of the transition from three to four. In neither case was it by any means Mr. C.G. Jung who suggested it to me, nor was there any deliberate conscious intention. Consequently, I am rather certain that objectively there is an important psychological and perhaps natural philosophical problem connected with these numbers. In other words, he realized the numbers three and four are archetypes. And Jung's analysis drove home to Pauli why he had such angst in moving from three quantum numbers to four quantum numbers in 1924. Because he was not only uh, grappling with the physics problem, but with his neurosis as well. The neurosis being that the fourth 
basic function, the feeling function, was in the deepness unconscious, and that had to be dragged out. So we had to go from three quantum numbers to four quantum numbers, from three basic functions to four basic functions. So this is in, in this instant, Jungian psychology gives you some insight into the into the creative moment. Now, in his waking life, uh, Pauli was always preoccupied with issues concerning symmetry, whether it was um, um, in physics or in psychology. In psychology, the symmetry between the conscious and the unconscious of being mirror reflections. Now, in 1952, Pauli was working on abstract symmetries in quantum physics, and, uh, and he had a dream. Once again, this is one of Fiorello's drawings. Probably had a dream. He was walking in the constellation Perseus. And uh, he encounters the double star Algol. And he encounters them in a, the, the, this binary star in a particular way. The two stars are, are exact reflections of one another. Mirror images, mirror symmetry. And suddenly the idea occurred to him, why not work on, on, on mirror symmetry in physics, even though, as he recalled uh, some years later, there was no real reason, no pressing reason in physics to, to do this. And then he thought along a bit more, and, uh, and he realized there are two other reflective symmetries that he, would, that he would consider, charge conjugation, which is changing matter to antimatter, and time reversal, reversing the direction of time. In 1954, this led him to one of his uh, great discoveries, CPT symmetry or the CPT theorem, which, let me just say it uh, a bit physics-wise first, charge conjugation C is the replacement of particles with antiparticles, matter with antimatter, parity P is mirror symmetry, you change left to right, and time reversal is you reverse direction of time. So if you apply these three operations, to equations of physics, you should get the equations of physics back again. Uh, well, big deal, but there is a big deal, because Pauli proved that CPT symmetry means agreement with relativity, which is a sine qua non of, of physics. This made Pauli very happy, as he put it, because, uh, as you recall, because relativity had been his first love in physics, and the exclusion principle enters too. People didn't understand the exclusion principle for a long, long time. Uh, the exclusion principle enters in that one if, as, if you have a collection of elementary particles, you have to distinguish between particles with integral and half integral spin. Said otherwise, what CPT means is the following: that if you if you're here, you're in our universe, you change all matter to antimatter, you flip left and right, and you change the direction of time. The universe that emerges is uh, indistinguishable from ours. Now, in, um, in November of that year, of 1954, Pauli had a dream that was uh, uh, so curious that it stuck in his mind a long time afterwards. Um, he was wandering uh, in a room in which uh, experiments with mirrors were being done, and he's walking with the dark woman, namely his, his anima. And there are others in the room, too, and... Uh, uh, the others have a very peculiar uh, outlook on what's going on. They think that the reflections are actually the objects, and the reflections sometimes don't match the objects. In other words, mirror symmetry is, seems to be violated. Uh, Pauli's animal, the dark woman, and Pauli are rather disturbed at this, and then, then the dark woman changes into a Chinese woman, uh, which had happened uh, 
several times in Tao's recent dreams, and Jung's take on the whole thing was that uh, the Chinese woman is a manifestation of uh, the, the wholeness of uh, Pauli's anima. Uh, and it's reasonable that she'd be Chinese, because in Chinese philosophy, there's a, uh, an emphasis on reconciliation of opposites, such as in the yin and the yang. Okay. Now, 1950, that's 1954. 1956 was a big year for Pauli. Um, his, um, uh, his neutrino was discovered uh, in June of that year. That's the, that's the particle he audaciously uh, suggested some 26 years before. And in that year, uh, two Chinese-American physicists, Cian uh, uh, Yang and T.D. Lee, uh, proposed that, suggested that, well, maybe mirror symmetry is not valid all the time in, in, in physics. And they sent a preprint of their article to uh, Pauli. Uh, Pauli had great respect for these two young men, uh, read it carefully, you know, gave a good laugh and filed it away in his desk drawer. Well, others took it more seriously. In January of 1957, an experiment, an important experiment was done which showed that indeed mirror symmetry or parity is not valid in the so-called weak interactions in physics. These are interactions that concern, for example, radioactivity. The experimental team uh, was led by Professor C.S. Wu uh, and, Pauli and, and the New York Times uh, called this the Chinese Revolution. Now, Pauli could not have missed the Jungian synchronicity here that there had been a Chinese woman in his dreams in which parity was, was violated, and here a Chinese woman uh, led the experimental team that showed that, yes, parity was violated in certain interactions in physics. Now, Pauli and uh, uh, Wu had met some 16 years before, and they renewed their friendship, uh, had, a exchange, had a very interesting exchange of letters, and Pauli wrote to her that what really bothered him in physics about parity violation is that it was violated only in, only in the weak interactions. What, what does the strength of an interaction have to do with the violation of a conservation law? It's still a good question, and in fact he wrote at this point good, lots of good questions, uh, no answers. T.D. Lee uh, <coughs> recalled to me that of that turbulent era that uh, the CPT, Pauli's CPT theorem uh, was a fixed point around which everything turned. Even though parity was violated, CPT remains good. Pauli confessed to Marcus Fierce that the downfall of parity, as he put it, caused him to behave irrationally for quite a while, and Fierce told, told Pauli that he had a mirror complex, and Pauli agreed. Pauli wrote uh, to Jung about his uh, shock at the Chinese Revolution, and uh, in the course of his discussions with Jung, Pauli concluded that mirror symmetry was absolutely necessary to be valid, because only then could the conscious and the unconscious be balanced, and the self could uh, uh, appear between them, and one could achieve the ultimate uh, level of enlightenment in Jungian psychology. You know, as you could be cured. Pauli concluded, as he had come to suspect, that there were psychological reasons in his discovery of CPT. Namely, that mirror symmetry is an archetype. Uh, but since it's an archetype, uh, it should be buried in the deep unconscious, how did it emerge into consciousness? And Pauli's reasoning 
um, of how this occurred is a, is a wonderful example of Jungian psychology as well as of uh, as well as containing certain elements that are essential to modern theories of creativity and it goes like this Pauli worked um, in 1952 he was working on abstract symmetries in quantum physics he worked very hard during the day he often got stuck he ceased work that is consciously because the intense the passionate desire to solve a problem keeps it alive in the unconscious and it's here where the energy is generated was generated to constellate or spark the archetype of mirror symmetry and then it emerged into consciousness as the archetypal image of the double star Algol um, so to Pauli as he put it there was a kind of synchronicity because there are unconscious motives when one is involved in something and so unconscious motives play a role in creative thinking there is a relationship he emphasized between physics and psychology it's that of of a mirror image yet there was no longer any mirror symmetry what what to do Uh, as Pauli put it if you look to archetypes this is not so shocking because physicists have considered only partial mirror images you look deeply into the psyche for more profound reflections and CPT symmetry is that profound mirror symmetry in other words the mirror symmetry that everyone had been thinking about was this trivial one with mirrors you look at a mirror and there's there's mirror symmetry but that's not the real mirror symmetry the big symmetry the big reflection is with CPT and that is maintained all the time and in that sense can the, uh, can the conscious and the unconscious be balanced now while Pauli was coming to grips with ramifications of, uh, of parity violation his uh, old friend and close colleague Heisenberg passed through Zurich uh, to discuss with uh, Pauli uh, Heisenberg's new research program which was nothing less than to formulate a unified theory of elementary particles which could produce their masses, coupling constants and decay schemes this was the, the, to be the culmination of Heisenberg's life's work it was his passion and up to that point Pauli had been nothing but negative now, Heisenberg's approach to physics was a helpful leather anything goes style it had worked in his discovery of quantum, of quantum mechanics the uncertainty principle, his work on the form of the nuclear force, and then his work during the 1930s on quantum electrodynamics to formulate a version of that theory free of infinities. And over the years, Heisenberg had become entranced with the power of mathematics to understand the physical world. He, in this unified theory, uh, to give you an idea of, of what was going on before he met Pauli, he, um, he advocated use of an indefinite metric, uh, uh, with negative probabilities there, as terrible as they, as they sound. And Pauli's response to this was, our friendship will stop if you don't stop that nonsense. <laughs> to which uh, Heisenberg replied, nature exists after all. In other words, Heisenberg was willing to throw rigor to the winds, uh, you know, kill them all, let God sort it out, that, that, sort, of, that sort of thing. Well, for Pauli, uh, rigor had to be maintained at every point in a calculation, at every point in theorizing, which incidentally led to Pauli missing out on several discoveries. So, as had always, as had always been the case, Pauli made a key suggestion to Heisenberg, 
This was to uh, look at a nonlinear version of the Dirac equation. I'll just write this down. It's form that matters, not content. And so Heisenberg went home, back to Göttingen, uh, worked with uh, uh, what he had and taking Pauli's uh, suggestion into account and came up with this equation. It's nonlinear because this thing, psi, occurs three times, cubic. Psi is a very complicated uh, quantized wave function which uh, Heisenberg and Pauli hoped would get rid of all problems concerning the in indefinite metric. Uh, they figured that uh, these, these complicated wave functions in conjunction with a, uh, a, uh, a degenerate or asymmetric ground state uh, would produce the masses of elementary particles, the decay schemes, and their coupling constants, in particular the fine structure constant 1 over 137, which had been the holy grail for Heisenberg and Pauli. It seemed as if the old days had come back. The two giants of quantum theory, theory were working together again, and indeed uh, results started to emerge. Heisenberg calculated the fine structure constant as 1 over 250. It should be 1 over 137, not bad. Pauli was, indeed, Pauli was hooked in this. As he, as he wrote to Heisenberg, it is bound to turn out magnificently. This is powerful stuff. Never before or afterwards have I seen Pauli so excited about physics, recalled Heisenberg. And indeed, Heisenberg too was, was brimming with excitement, and working with his old friend again, uh, two giants were at it, and it, it, it seemed as if Heisenberg could realize his platonic dream, as he wrote to his sister that these relationships, which he believed would emerge from their theory, that these relationships display in all their mathematical abstraction an incredible degree of simplicity is a, is a gift we can only accept humbly. Not even Plato could have believed them to be so beautiful. For these interrelationships cannot have been invented. They have been here. They have been there since the creation of the world. And Heisenberg and Pauli wrote up a paper on which uh, Pauli would lecture on in February of 1958 in New York City. Uh, for Jung, their research was so fundamental that he drew Jungian significance uh, in it. He saw Jungian significance in it, although he always realized how different he was uh, from Heisenberg. He believed at this point uh, that they were both gripped by the same archetype, reflection symmetry. And indeed, Pauli believed that when he sat down at his desk to write out equations, his hand was guided by the archetype of mirror symmetry, by, by, the, by the archetype director-reflector. And he even had a dream about it. He dreamt that he came into a room and he saw two children. And he called out to his second wife, Franca. This is Franca, and this is the way Franca recalled Pauli proposed to her. He called out to his second wife, Franca, look, two children. And uh, he had seen Heisenberg only a few days before, and the two children represented the new ideas which would emerge from their theory. And to him, they also represented his mirror complex. Pauli saw in their work a realization of the unconscious, of what he had sought for years, the balancing or the conscious and the unconscious as mirror images of each other. Now, in February 1958, uh, the... Uh, Pupin Lecture Theater in the Physics Department at Columbia University was jam-packed with over 300 people. Uh, they were eager to see the great Pauli lecture on a theory formulated by the two giants of quantum physics. Uh, Bohr, Oppenheimer, Lee, Yang, Wu, 
were there. Uh, the air was electric, but the distinguished audience had only critical comments to make on, uh, on what they saw unfolding, although in a friendly manner. A key point in their theory was decay schemes of elementary particles, and while Pauli was scribbling on the blackboard, a, an eminent physicist raised his hand and stood up and said, Professor Pauli, that elementary particle does not decay in that way. Uh, there was, uh, Pauli just stopped in mid-flow, there was a long silence, and he muttered, I must uh, call my friends in Göttingen about this, meaning Heisenberg. Um, T.D. Lee remembered that at that point you could almost feel the silence. Uh, others, too, jumped in and uh, uh, pointed out loopholes in mathematical proofs. Pauli just seemed to lose his passion as he, as he went along. Uh, at the, the question and answer session, everyone, everyone remembers who was there uh, because Pauli and Bohr chased each other around a, a table in front of the room and when Bohr was in front he said, it's not crazy enough and when Pauli was in front he said, it is crazy enough. And eventually the audience broke out into sustained applause. Yang remembered Pauli saying afterwards, the more I talked about it, the, I believed it. And the, as I talked more and more, I believed it less and less. Uh, the following day, there was another major meeting, the meeting of uh, uh, the winter meeting of the American Physical Society in New York City at the Hilton Hotel. This was the big physics meeting of, of, of the world at that time. And the audience, uh, the room was packed, once again, to hear Pauli lecture. But now he faced uh, an audience of brash young American physicists, and they're, they're pragmatic people, and, and uh, their criticism was quite harsh. Uh, Lee told me that he, he could not bring himself to attend, and the fact that he had tried to uh, impose upon Pauli not to lecture at all on the Heisenberg-Pauli theory. Uh, Pauli, after that, went on to uh, California, where he encountered the, the likes of Richard Feynman, who had, had no compunction telling Bohr to his face that he was an idiot. Uh, Pauli was beginning to think, maybe it's not crazy enough. And disillusioned, he even attacked Heisenberg's calculation of the fine structure constant as being 1 over 250, the calculation that hooked Pauli originally into the situation. As he, uh, as he wrote to the Fierce, I have never considered it as correct as so totally stupid. And indeed, uh, Roberto Ascoli, who had co-authored that paper with Heisenberg, where they produced the fine structure constant as 1 over 250. Ascoli recalled many years later that when he first did that calculation, the answer came out to be 8. And what Heisenberg did was to doctor up uh, the theory so that it came out to be 1 over 250. And by the way, this is a picture uh, of uh, T.D. Lee and, and, Bohr and uh, uh, Pauli uh, talking at, at Brookhaven in 1958, when Pauli began then to, to tour the country after his lectures. Now, uh, later, that, later that month, uh, Heisenberg lectured at, a, at his institute in, in Göttingen. There was a packed audience, the press was there, and a press release was worded uh, to Pauli's dismay. Professor Heisenberg and his assistant, W. Pauli, have discovered the basic <laughs> equation of the cosmos. Uh, <laughs> Pauli had first vented his anger to the physicist George Gamloff, and writing here, uh, here um, you know, mouthing words of Heisenberg, uh, this is to show the world that I can paint like Titsy and only technical details are missing. <laughs> but he was really angry, as he wrote to, uh, to Wu, saying that he had been unfortunately mentioned only in a mild form as a secondary or tertiary auxiliary person of the super Faust, super Einstein, and Superman Heisenberg. 
Heisenberg's desire for publicity and glory seems to be insatiable. He certainly wishes to compensate earlier failure, perhaps lying in the whole history of his life. Uh, here he, uh, he, he was clearly alluding to Heisenberg's role in the German atomic bomb project. Well, Pauli decided to drop out, contacted Heisenberg about it. Heisenberg kept on running after him saying, look, hang on, great results will follow. This led Pauli to write the fears. He, Heisenberg, believes that if he publishes with me, then it is 1930 again. I found it embarrassing how he runs after me. That's, in that summer, Pauli chaired a session at CERN at which Heisenberg was scheduled to speak, and he introduced Heisenberg by saying, what you will hear today is only a substitute for fundamental ideas. And then he turned around to the audience and said, please don't laugh in the wrong places. Ha, ha, ha. And everyone was already rolling in the aisles. He let Heisenberg present his lecture and then demolished him. Um, later that summer, and this is uh, Heisenberg and Pauli at a, at a cruise on Lake Geneva during, during the meeting. Uh, later that summer, um, they met again, and, and Heisenberg recalled that uh, Pauli looked terrible. Uh, Pauli said to him, look, I can't go on, but I, you should go on and carry on and carry on with this work. Now, besides, you know, issues of physics, what could have made Pauli look so horrible? And, I mean, people thought that, that, uh, that he, he seemed beaten. Uh, I, I, what I believe is uh, the, the Jungian, what bothered Pauli was that the Jungian connotations that he had given that the Heisenberg-Pauli theory could not now be, be attained. T.D. Lee's take on the uniform theory, the unified theory of Heisenberg and Pauli was that it, it contains some interesting points and should not, should not be dismissed out of hand, such as the seeds of spontaneous symmetry breaking, but that they had reached too far beyond their grasp. The, uh, ex the proper experimental uh, data just did not exist for such a jump at that time. In other words, in their platonic quest, they had lost their grip on physical reality. On December 5th, 1958, uh, Pauli was teaching uh, his, his Friday, Pauli was teaching his afternoon physics class and came down with extreme stomach pains and had to be rushed to the Red Cross Hospital in Zurich. Uh, the next day, his assistant, Charles Enns, came to visit him, and uh, Pauli was in a very, you know, bothered state, and... Uh, and Enns asked Pally, what's wrong? And Pally said, have you seen the number of this room? And Enns said, no. And Pally said, it's 137. I'm not getting out of here alive. <laughs> and he didn't. He was, he was diagnosed as having a massive pancreatic carcinoma. And, uh, and he died December 15th in room 137, a number over which he had obsessed his entire life. His last request had been to speak to Carl Jung. Five days later, he was cremated, and there was a memorial service held in the beautiful Framunster Church in Zurich. Franke arranged the funeral. And there were five speakers, Bohr, Vicky Weisskopf, a, a, a famous assistant of Pauli, Fierz, Adolf Guggenbühl, a lifelong friend, and Paul Scherer, who had been a long-time head of the physics department at the ETH, with, with whom Pauli had a complicated relationship. Uh, Jung, at now age 82, was relegated to a seat in the back. There was one notable absentee, Heisenberg. Uh, the ETH had sent Heisenberg an invitation uh, in enough time for Heisenberg to make the trip from Munich to Zurich to pay his last respects to his longtime friend and colleague who had sparked just about every one of his great ideas. And indeed, Heisenberg didn't even bother to write a letter of condolence, but left it to his wife, 
who simply said that it was the Christmas season and they were too busy to travel. Uh, Mein Heisenberg have spurned his old friend because of Pauli's acid comments at CERN and elsewhere about their about uh, the, his theory. Uh, over a decade later, Heisenberg returned to this uh, uh, to this episode in his autobiography and. Um, emphasizing that in his opinion Pauli's criticisms were quite unreasonable indeed the intensity which, which these two men treated their passion physics went beyond the grave Pauli's ashes were interred in the town of Zolotan where he lived uh, situated between Zurich where the Eteha is and Kuznacht where he used to visit uh, Jung at his fortress like mansion um, the two places uh, that defined his two worlds, the worlds of physics and psychology. Jung died three years later. Franco Pauli spent the remaining 28 years of her life uh, doing her best to prevent any publication of anything that had to do with Jung and Pauli, uh, believing that this would uh, detract from her husband's reputation as a, a serious scientist. Now Jung claimed that, his, uh, that as a result of his analysis, Pauli became a perfectly normal and reasonable man, became less uh, critical and stopped drinking. Well, less critical maybe, but not with Heisenberg. And this was drinking. Jung and Pauli used to uh, drink excessively when they, when, uh, when they got together at Jung's house. And indeed, this is a, uh, a typical picture of Pauli at a party, drink in hand. Uh, Pauli uh, claimed that alcohol helped him uh, through his bouts of depression. As Jung put it, a third of his cases uh, were cured, a third sort of helped, and a third nothing happened. Pauli was somewhere in the middle. Now, Jung's and Pauli's was a truly unique meeting of the minds. As Jung often recalled, with Pauli, Jung could enter the no man's land between physics and the psychology of the unconscious, the most fascinating, yet the darkest hunting ground of our times. And what I told you today is a, is a, is a, is a linear a very linear uh, telling of a very complex relationship and for more details I refer you to my book. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have now time for questions. According to what we have, a police approach seems to suggest that there could be an irrational element in scientific discovery. And what are the implications of accepting police approach to scientific discovery? Oh, that's, uh, that's an approach that's, well, it's not only Pauli's, but it's, it's many people's approaches. My approach also, that at that, that nascent or magical moment of discovery, uh, you, you can't understand that in any logical, mathematical way. Uh, you know, one hopes to understand it at some time, uh, but it will be a combination of, of logic and other things too. I mean, everything seems to come together, and they're like laser beams focusing at a point. Are you yeah, well, I, I think I only know the list here. Oh, okay. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> I wanted to ask if you could say something more about shift in creative production that happened after the first. Session of analysis with Jung that happened in the early 1930s, because you you described all the shifts in his um, personality mm -hmm. and the way he thought about various things, but you didn't say much about how his way of doing physics changed. Could you spell a little bit more 
Yeah, no, he didn't change at all. I mean, did his physics just go on as ever? He began to understand his way. I mean, what, what, uh, I mean, both men got something out of this, uh, out of this relationship. It was, it was interesting. And that's one of the many interesting points about it. Uh, what Jung got out of it was a better understanding of, of, of synchronicity, which he called the best idea he ever had. Uh, what Pauli got out of it was understanding the dynamics of his thoughts, of, of his thinking, and uh, he believed that it, it, it enabled him to open up his life to understand his, the dynamics, not only of his creativity, but of, of, of the way he moved about life better, how he dealt with women better, how he dealt with colleagues in a, a better way. Although, I mean, um, it, it's, it's very interesting that uh, the Institute of Physics uh, did a uh, survey in about uh, 2001 of the most influential physicists of the, of the 20th century, and Pauli was not amongst them. Pauli was never mentioned by anybody. Uh, in his own sphere, uh, all of these remarks that, that, that uh, have come into the lore of physics, why that's not even wrong and things of that sort, bothered people. And, uh, and Pauli had lots of enemies out there. In fact, even in the Eteha, uh, when he died, uh, the man who was head of the physics department, uh, Yost, uh, just did nothing with Pauli's papers, which rested in a closet for years uh, until uh, finally Vicky Weisskopf offered uh, that CERN take them. They should really be at the ETH, but they, they're at CERN. Geneva is another, another pole of things. Uh, so he was not well liked within the physics community. And, and um, I once had a con- I'm talking nonlinearly. <laughs> and I once had a conversation with somebody who was a chemist. Yeah, and I was mentioning uh, Wolfgang Pauli and the exclusion principle, and then the conversation got a little weird. And I said, I mean, Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist, not, and the chemist said, no, you mean, you mean the chemist. Uh, the father was a major chemist, and uh, chemists, no um, older chemists at any rate, uh, recognized Wolfgang Pauli as the name of Wolfgang Pauli Sr. So, and the exclusion principle was not well understood for many, many years after, even, even today it's somewhat... It's somewhat nebulous, um, you know. What it what, that that it is an axiom, for example, had to be accepted. Pauli felt at first that he could he could derive it somehow or another, uh, and as a result of Jungian analysis, Pauli understood how he made the discovery of the exclusion principle, the movement from three to four. He learned to pay attention to his dreams, and uh, this led him to. Uh, the discovery of the CPT theorem, for example. So, uh, and at, at, uh, at the end of his life, well, he didn't know it was going to be the end of his life. <laughs> I mean, death is always untimely. Uh, he began to come out about his, uh, his feelings about mysticism. One of the reasons why he kept his mystical side quiet, because he was actually afraid that uh, his, his more... You know, hard-nosed colleagues, Bohr and Heisenberg, would laugh at him, and they, they probably would have. But t- towards in, in the late late fifties, Pauli began to write articles about mysticism, and in one article he said that what really is of interest to him is um, how mysticism in a new form, not the old form. He never believed in astrology, but not mysticism in a new form could be combined with physics, uh, because after all, there's a lot out there that we don't understand. And uh, science, uh, per se, um, hasn't been able to explain it to us. Pauli wrote, noted again and again, because he wrote, uh, the way I discovered this whole thing was walking around in uh, uh, the bowels of Widener Library, and I came across uh, a book by Jung and Pauli, and what's this all about? 
And so Jung had an article in it on synchronism and Pauli on Kepler. And it's, it's a very interesting article. It's, it's an article written with great passion about alchemy by somebody who understands alchemy. And indeed, it's considered by historians as the work on Kepler and, 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 and alchemy. Um, and in that book and elsewhere, in that article and elsewhere, Pauli makes clear something that we should all bear in mind, and certainly Descartes did, who made the split between dead matter and live matter. Dead matter can be described like rocks. I can calculate how fast a rock will hit the ground when I drop it, and it, it, it lands pretty much when it should. Um, but you can't apply thus far mathematics to live matter. I mean, reductionism, ugh, what a word, uh, can be... Uh, uh, when, when you talk to a chemist about reductionism, they know, they know laws of quantum mechanics, they don't mean anything. What reduction in chemistry is reduction to chemical equations, not the Schrodinger's equations, too, too many particles in it. And uh, so what, what Pauli and Jung were interested in were the limits of science. And they both believed right from the onset that psychology, uh, as it was formulated at, at that time, even today perhaps, Cannot um, have us cannot, you know, uh, get into this riddle. Cannot break the riddle of consciousness, and certainly neither can physics. And consciousness was a key issue with them. And they believed that only a combination of physics, biology, psychology, and today computer science, and who knows what else. Um, I mean, who knows? Who knew thirty years ago that science would look the way it does now? So only a combination and interdisciplinary approach to the problem of consciousness can succeed and their discussions along these lines um, I felt uh, was at a, such a high level that people should be reminded of that and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book yeah. um, just to, to yeah. follow up on that um, I'm just on the last point about limits of science had that something to do with Pauli's rejection of Heisenberg's vision of a grand unified theory that I mean, he obviously was very vigorously opposed to. Well, he was. As he said, I mean, what were his, his motives there? And had there something to do with the point he just. Yes, I mean, he believed that there were Jungian connotations in it. That's what. I mean, initially it was the calculation of the fine structure constant as 1 over 250, which, uh, which hooked him in, but then he saw Jungian connotations in it. Uh, in that it was a theory that would contain all symmetries known, and therefore it would be, in a sense, even a big, bigger reflector than, than CPT. And that gave him uh, even, uh, that, to him, this would uh, be a, a grand unifier, not only of elementary particles, but of, con of, of the conscious and the unconscious, and possibly reveal something about consciousness as well. He felt that there were there was a great future for it. I mean, the uh, the uh, setting it down in terms of physics, in terms of mathematics, is one thing, but uh, maybe one can move it from there. Yeah. Uh, Double-barrel question, if I may. Uh, matrices. When was it in, in his life? Oh yes, uh, he did. He did that in um, in about 1926. Yeah, well, after the Schrodinger equation, of course, yeah. the, the 26. Uh, did Jung ever mention in his, uh, in his notes, which was exposed later, how much uh, his, the dreams were influenced by drugs? Because he seemed to be, have a very fertile imagination for a scientist. Influenced by what? 
Yeah, I mean, you said trees tre- tre- Yes, right. Yeah. How much of that was influenced by his taking drugs? Uh, did you ever mention that? Uh, no, I mean, uh, Pauli took drugs, but I think it was in a, uh, uh, a fairly uh, controlled way. I mean, lots of people, you know, popped hashish pills and things like that. I think that was as far. Alcohol was the, the big, the big thing for him. Uh, the dreams were—I don't believe that they were uh, entirely drug-induced dreams. He was—he was an avid dreamer, and um, and he wrote—he wrote down his dreams immediately. The next day, he would write down his dreams. And he would try to do some analysis of the dreams as well. Uh, as I mentioned, the dreams will be published sometime in the next ten years. I don't know when. They're kept under lock and key um, under strict lawyer's order. So uh, I know where they are, but you can't, you can't get at them. I try to get at them once looking at death drawer. <laughs> I just wondered about the fate of his animal because you described very fascinatingly how it emerged. You know. What then happened that psychologically to him with women? And was the emergence of the anima really a stimulating intellectual event? Well, the, the emergence of the anima, um, in other words, lifting of the feeling function out of the unconscious, um, uh, enabled him to better understand himself, to lead, a, to lead a more balanced life. He was happy with Franca in his own way. I mean, he was always looking around, womanizing, let's put it that way, and drinking. But he was happy, and, and he said he was happier than he had ever been. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, was he this, more creative then after this event, the animal appearing? He was always creative, except the except his psyche was in some wild state. Um, he was creative in, in in the sense also of uh, the kind of person who spun off ideas. Who you could you could talk to about your ideas, but he was um, uh, very slow about uh, writing things up. I mean, he produced. So many great ideas in footnotes to papers that other people uh, other people took off on. Uh, he was always spinning out ideas. In other words, he was a, a critic. I thought it was uh, fundamental to the analytic relationship that the analyst uh, kept himself apart. That sounds very different in this case. Well, during during a year during a year and a half that uh, Pauli was in face to face analysis, they uh, they didn't socialize. Uh, it was a, uh, and an, you know, it began as a patient-doctor uh, relationship, and then became a colleagueship, and then in, then into a friendship. Uh, Jung greatly valued uh, Pauli's friendship, and uh, vice versa. Uh, and in fact, during the war, uh, Pauli, Pauli spent the war at the Institute for Advanced Study, and um, certainly after he won a Nobel Prize, uh, positions were offered to him from everywhere. Uh, but he decided to go back to, to Switzerland, and one reason was to see Jung again. But the analysis really sort of stopped after that. The analysis stopped at, the analysis stopped after 18 months. Oh, they, they continued to correspond, and Pauli would send Jung dreams, and Jung would comment on, on the dreams, and then also they would meet frequently at Jung's house. People wrote letters in those days instead of, uh, instead of emails, but they, um, they were quite voluminous uh, correspondence. No, I never or consider. Do you, re- do you believe that in this story you uh, give us insight, actually, in a more general process no. of how how some some of these meetings can actually spark uh, 
Yeah, that, that's precisely. I, I've never saw myself as a mere historian, in, in the sense that I, I began life as a physicist, and when I went into, uh, I was always interested in nature, you know, the, the nature of questions, and uh, uh, when I began to do in quotes history, it was not the sort of history that X said this and Y said that and Z responded to X and Y. That, that's all useful, if done right, it saves you the trouble of looking up the original papers. But no, I wanted to. Um, uh, figure out how the human mind works and, and to uh, use uh, historical data, so to speak, as grist for the mill of cognitive theories of science. So in, in, in this sense, you're quite right. What I, you, you read my mind. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I wanted to do was to, to bring out what, what these people were after, uh, which has been forgotten, and bring out the level of their conversations, and that, that, that this was not just mad stuff. Um, uh, um, again, as Pauli put it, mysticism will emerge in some new way, not in some, not in the old ways of, uh, of astrology. You want to go on? Yeah, yes, actually, because that that means that that actually, in that sense, you believe also what they said that it is that indeed their own understanding, or at least uh, Pauli's understanding of his discoveries in in, uh, in physics, were indeed. Uh, Caused or at least oh, yeah, no, he, under, he understood them after the fact. Um, that's to say, the, 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 the exclusion principle. Well, the, you look at his letters. You, you, that's the only thing you have. They they were understood after the, the exclusion principle was understood after the fact. But then he began to see the usefulness of dreaming and what you you know you should you should pay attention to your dreams, which is why he dreamt of himself walking in the constellation Perseus, and he sees this this dual star system as reflections of one another. Mirror reflection comes to mind, mirror reflection, he had wondered, but that was in 1952, um, in um, 1933 he recounts another dream in which um, this business of mirror symmetry between the conscious and the unconscious enters. So th this has been going on for a while, and he dreamt, kept a record of his dreams, um, and studied them, and Tried to take some direction from them, which he had not, which he had not previously. Okay, now I'm not. Uh, I, what I accept that I accept that yes, on the uh, historical basis of, of of letters, some written um, uh, at the time it happened, some written after the fact. Uh, but that's the only thing that that we that we have. Uh, one of one of the problems here is that uh, these two people talk to each other uh, frequently, so there's no written record of what they said. Jung did not keep any protocols when he did uh, analysis. Uh, it was just a, a, a freewheeling thing. And even then, it would be very difficult to get hold of those, of, of those uh, uh, protocols. So from the historical data, I mean, you know, there, uh, there are ways of writing, and, and, and the question you raise is a, a good one about how you write uh, a bi historical biography. If you write a historical biography just based only on Facts, in quotes, facts. Historical facts are tricky things, of course. From from correspondence, uh, you get a very one-sided view. You have to uh, uh, conjecture. You have to get inside the mind of the person. And the way you do that is by uh, fictionalizing, to some extent, to, to bring out what's what could well be going on, without, of course, violating uh, basic uh, what we basically know about these people. For example, I don't know. Did you see that there was a uh, made-for-TV movie of Einstein and anything, which was well, a lot of yeah, a lot of historical liberties were, were, were taken, but nevertheless the, the central point of Eddington's eclipse experiment was there. That, that's, what it, that's what it wove around. So, um, I mean, I didn't quite go...